0: Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Angela Kaida, an Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair at Simon Fraser University, studying the links between HIV and sexual and reproductive health. She completed her PhD in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia and subsequently completed a postdoctorate fellowship at the Women's Health Research Institute at UBC. Her work spans multiple continents, and she actively works with community leaders and decision makers to integrate valuable research into sexual and reproductive health policy. In our recent conversation, we spoke about your path to associate professorship and the beautiful way in which you came into academia. But let's start from the very beginning. What's
1: your story? So what's my story? I mean, I would say I didn't come to academia through a path, a direct pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my I was always interested in health, and I was always interested in science um, and research. But I didn't know that the discipline of public health research or, or epidemiology was a field of study. Mm-hmm. And so I I think I I kind of uh, stumbled my way towards it, sort yeah. of thing, if I can describe it that way. Um, and and really found that. Found that in in the research process, it was an area that I could contribute, but as as a scientist, but also as somebody who was very interested in social justice and mm-hmm. very interested in equity, I just felt, found that it was a, a an area of research that allowed me or sort of encouraged us to be both, um, and so I found that to be very motivating,
0: mm-hmm.
1: of course, um, and and so I guess my my story <laughs> it's kind of a big question, but. <laughs> I suppose I'd say that I, you know, I started my undergraduate training in biology, mm-hmm. um, and in, in at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, and I think like a lot of people, maybe sort of wound a pathway around whether I wanted to do um, medicine or mm-hmm. whether I wanted to do physiotherapy or whether I wanted to do optometry, and those were just disciplines that I had come and. Contact with mm-hmm. as a as a girl, kind of growing up, yeah. and so those disciplines that you may not encounter as readily don't become as obvious to you as mm-hmm. a career pathway, um, in many ways. And then sort of found that that was not really my my strength or my interest in in, in many ways. Um, and then, as I said, I I had I, had, I loved biology. Um, mm-hmm. I did not love working in a research lab with. Rats and <laughs> dissection and, and all of that stuff. It just yeah. wasn't my, I, I wasn't very good at it, I would probably say, and I wasn't that interested in it. Mm-hmm. I guess I was a, a teenager when a lot of the HIV crisis really started to explode in Eastern and Southern Africa, mm-hmm. and in particular in my life. I know it was happening in North America as well, but mm-hmm. in my own family life, it was happening. And I was starting to, to experience these. Um, uh, these, these circumstances where people in my own family became affected or infected with HIV mm-hmm. and watching how uh, a close, tight-knit, um, supportive, you know, extended family reacted to that news. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of was sad and confused uh, about how illness could intersect with so many social issues, whether it's gender or power or class Mm -hmm. or race or religion, um, intersect with that to create conditions where we weren't really thinking about the infectious agent or the pathogen of HIV. We were thinking about all of the other implications of stigma or, you know, being a good person or Mm. um, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So at that point, the interest then was not to treat people with HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. It was to understand the nuances of having HIV and AIDS. Because you did have a background in biology or an interest in it, so why wasn't that the
1: default? Yeah, I mean, it was. It's interesting because when treatment first became available in in 1996, here Mm -hmm. in uh, the the results of of the first treatment trials were announced here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, It was a very exciting time, but. Most of my experience with HIV was before that. It was in the early 1990s, before there was treatment. Mm -hmm. And really, um, in Eastern and Southern Africa, before there was really any hope of treatment. And of course, like a lot of those settings, it was another 10, you know, maybe 8 to 10 years before treatment really became... Accessible. Mm-hmm. Let me use that word. Yeah, because for some um, who had the means, treatment became available, but really not accessible to mm-hmm. most people. So my interest um, in treatment was much was of course present, and, and I continue to be interested in treatment around, you know, who has access, who doesn't have access, who can be supported to maintain uh, successful treatment, mm-hmm. who can. But my own training was less in the pharmacology side of things about, you know, okay, how are we going to figure out what is the appropriate treatment and more about um, sort of the social and structural fact- factors that are going to create circumstances for access to treatment. Mm-hmm. So I was very interested in the lives of people who were affected and infected with HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that really, I guess, was probably a personal journey <laughs> I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: What were some of the things that you realized about those dynamics? What are some of the statistics that we might not know about about how gender affects HIV and AIDS? About how social class and economic status? I mean, there there's some obvious ideas. Yeah. The less money you have, the less access you have. Yeah. But What's what are some of those other nuances? I mean, I guess
1: particularly for my work, the gender and sex cannot be uh, <laughs> cannot be separated from understanding how HIV has has uh, has affected particular populations. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of people don't think of HIV as a as an infection affecting women, but actually, more women there are more women living with HIV around the world than men. Yep. Um, and in particular contexts, the difference is is massive. It's sixty percent mm-hmm. of women and sixty plus percent of women in Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Of, of sorry, sixty plus percent of people living with HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa are women mm. uh, relative to men, and so that dynamic. Um, Uh, And and that plays out in a number of settings around the world. Here in Canada, it's about a quarter of all people living with HIV are women. And uh, I think that gets overlooked um, a great deal as we conceptualize HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of what that that has led to is that if we don't think about women when we think about HIV, then we don't think about the factors um, that are very relevant to Mm -hmm. women's lives. Mm -hmm. So, for instance... um, conversations about pregnancy and family building. Mm -hmm. So particularly in early days, the guidelines around pregnancy for women living with HIV were highly dissuasive. We've got stories of women um, undergoing forced sterilization Mm -hmm. because of uh, the infection, and so much concern about transmission to infants, which of course, you know, I, I understand the the concern about perinatal transmission. Mm. But I also, first and foremost, believe in reproductive rights mm-hmm. and women's reproductive rights. So I think um, when we don't think about women in HIV, we don't think about how, how should guidance um, or how should women be supported mm-hmm. to achieve their reproductive goals while living with HIV, mm-hmm. right? How can we make that process and minimize risk but maximize her reproductive rights at the same time? Mm-hmm. And so, and of course, these these issues extend to HIV prevention mechanisms. Yeah. So we focus so heavily on condom use, mm-hmm. and we want to pretend that how people make decisions about their sexual lives and condom use is... is Free of any power, free of any other forms mm-hmm. of negotiation. Mm-hmm. And that's we that's know not the that case. individually, mm-hmm. you know, and we know that structurally that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So a, a very heavy emphasis on condom promotion without accounting for those dynamics and sexual relationships and those dynamics and sexual power inequities mm-hmm. is um is is incomplete. Is the, the generous way I can describe that is incomplete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess, um, and, and you know, there are a lot of biological reasons at play as well. Mm-hmm. So the risk of transmitting HIV from a male partner to a female partner um, through vaginal sex is two times higher mm-hmm. than it is in reverse. Um, and that wow. risk, it gets exacerbated when we talk about younger women who mm-hmm. may have immature genital tracts. Mm-hmm. Um, the risk can be quite a bit higher yeah. in those circumstances. Um, and so we have, and of course, there's, there's co-infections, bacterial vaginosis, mm-hmm. um, untreated STIs that subsequently increase risk from male partners to female partners of acquiring HIV. Yeah. So we have these conditions where biological factors, genetic factors, mm. and social factors, structural factors, all create an environment of HIV risk and consequence, yeah. right, um, that when we don't think about HIV among women we want we, we neglect and really gets under uh, really under addressed mm-hmm. so I think you know my my interest so there's there's a lot of other you know this is intersectional work and intersectional thinking so it's not just about male female mm-hmm. or or cisgender woman or, mm-hmm. or transgender women there are numerous mm-hmm. layers of social um, factors and identities that intersect here yeah. but um, not but and um, at fundamentally, looking at the role, the differences of sex and gender is one of the, the um, motivators mm-hmm. for me in, as I started my own academic research career. Were there any hurdles to that?
0: Because I know that that's a topic of, of neuroscientific research. Predominantly, research is done in males. Beyond just male exploration in in human beings, it's also male mice a lot of the times and male rats. In fact, I believe the stats currently are 5.5 to 1 in terms of male to female studies. So it's absolutely ridiculous. And now there's a push because we do get a lot of public funding Uh to obviously explore the female aspects as well. So is there any hurdle in the field that you're in right now to... To do that, is there a oh, we don't need to study this, or are people realizing the importance?
1: I mean, I I'm hope I'm an optimistic person mm-hmm. um, by nature, and so I think that the change is coming. It's not it doesn't happen on its own. Mm-hmm. It happens because of advocacy and mm-hmm. because of um, you know several scientists and advocates you know demonstrating through their research through their work of how critical um, this gap is, and mm-hmm. how actually by failing to consider sex and gender, our science is weaker for it.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, and and I think, and, and the application of our science is weaker mm-hmm. for it. And I think, you know, CHR as a tri-council agency has made some some big moves in that direction mm-hmm. to ensure that we're as we apply for research funding, that we are considering sex and gender within our research approaches, and that's a—it's a slow process, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, you know, one webinar is not going to get us there, <laughs> but but we're—I hope I think as a collective research community, we're mm-hmm. starting to be, uh, you know, eyes open to the damage that can be done mm-hmm. um, and the opportunity lost, really. Mm-hmm. And so I know that a lot of the women uh, living with HIV that I work with here in BC. Mm-hmm. They, one of the ways they, they really bring this, this inequity to light is when they talk about side effects of antiretroviral therapies mm. in their lives. And I'm not an expert on, on you know pharmacology and, and these sorts of things, but when they talk about the side effects of ARTs mm-hmm. on their lives, they really talk <laughs> very eloquently and, and really beautifully about how you know, the their dosing of ARTs that mm-hmm. they receive is really very similar whether you're a very small, you know, woman, or Mm. you're a big man, and you metabolize drugs more quickly, Mm -hmm. or etc. And so they talk about a whole bunch of different side effects, perhaps that are not life threatening, but certainly are affecting quality of life Mm -hmm. and probably affecting adherence and probably affecting all of these other aspects of their lives. Yeah. Um, And it's difficult when women are not sufficiently enrolled in clinical trials to be able to capture the consequences or the implications of these types of side effects. Mm -hmm. And we see that in clinical HIV trials globally, that um, women are certainly not enrolled in those trials in nearly the proportionate numbers mm-hmm. of which there are women living with HIV globally. Mm-hmm. And so again, that science has consequences for patients' life for patient lives, mm-hmm. for our understanding of the science, for our understanding of hormonal interactions. Um, um, and those pathways are I think there's some really exciting science happening out there about mm-hmm. those pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we've got some way to go.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> we have made a lot of progress it seems. Are you ever discouraged by the way things go, or do you feel your progress that you're making is steady but profound?
1: I mean, I'm, yeah, for sure. I mean, discouraged, it is discouraging to see. You know, there was recent study about pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. Um, so PrEP, which is an um, ARV formulation that a person who is HIV negative takes mm-hmm. to prevent them from acquiring HIV infection upon exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, And PrEP is really an exciting HIV prevention tool that can offer options to people for whom condoms have not Mm -hmm. been uh, desirable or um, difficult to use or et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And the trial sort of had kind of concluded, oh, we we only included men in this trial, um, so we're not sure what the consequence what 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 the results would look like for women. Oh my God. And you know you sort of see that type of science and you think, well (laughs) Who designed the study? <laughs> who designs the study and at what point is that? does that become just unacceptable yeah. science because, you know, we know quite a bit about PrEP use in men actually mm. and we don't know very much about PrEP use in women. Mm. And again, as I was sort of outlining, who is globally affected by HIV? Um, it's slightly more women than men. So mm. a- again, issues of class and privilege and, and race come into those to those dynamics, without question. Yeah. Um. And I. And I think there's there's some other structural reasons. And one one observation that I've had to, conducting research with women living with HIV here in Canada is that there's less um, cohesion. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's not there's far fewer you know women you know organizations that support women living with HIV or mm-hmm. ways for them to come together. So you know just I think thinking a bit cynically that if you wanted to recruit women living with HIV, it would be just a little bit harder to, to know where to go to find them right. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think for many, not all, but many men living with HIV, mm-hmm. um, there are those types of organizations and groups, so it might be a bit easier to connect in with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and but science isn't supposed to necessarily be easy. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> if we know that that's the case, then we need to be funded Differently mm-hmm. um, uh, to do the groundwork necessary to, mm-hmm. to bring women into these into these trials. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's discouraging to see research like that, and it's discouraging to still continue to see women underrepresented in clinical trials mm-hmm. globally. Um, and you know, it, but and at the same time, still trying to be involved in the in the community mm-hmm. kind of groundwork that needs to be done um, to try to change that. Is this similar work that you did when you were a graduate student? So when I was a graduate student, mm-hmm. I was um, I was working with women mm-hmm. uh, living with HIV, also those not living with HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was I was less involved in what I would call community engaged research than I am now. Mm-hmm. So my work during my PhD was based in South Africa mm-hmm. in Soweto, mm-hmm. um, and I was ar- around the time that I was starting to think about my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, access to antiretroviral therapy in South Africa was starting to really increase. Okay. And it was—I uh, mean, South Africa has a very sordid history about acknowledging <laughs> HIV and providing treatment mm-hmm. to its citizens. Um, but around the time that I was starting, it, that work was also starting to happen. Yeah. And I had really thought that, oh my gosh, this could really be very transformative mm-hmm. to women's reproductive health, sexual, sexual and reproductive health. Yeah. Um, and had done some work to sort of think like, okay, to anticipate the directions through which those uh, those effects might happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and people are, I've kind of learned a bit over time, people are worried about HIV insofar as it affects the public, insofar as it affects transmission to other people. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, a bit less worried about The life and experiences of the people who are already living with HIV, Mm. and so I think my my PhD work sort of brought that to light for me in many ways. So I was interested in you know where women you know people always were worried at the time that oh once there was widespread access to antiretroviral therapy, Mm. people were going to get on therapy and they could live longer and so they could have all kinds of sex and be transmitting HIV and be having all these babies and we're we, really so <laughs> we gonna be so worried about that and, <laughs> and you know you can hear it even today. You can hear that kind of rhetoric today. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it it can be easy to buy into it mm-hmm. if you're worried if you think about public health, which I am a public health researcher, so I do think about public mm-hmm. health. Um, and this, this kind of conceptualization of Women living with HIV is either, there's a kind of catchy way. It's like victims or vectors mm. or virgins. And you kind of come up, there's this sort of like social, um, I don't know, stigmata almost about how we think about it. Yeah. And then my work really, my research in Soweto really opened up to me about, yeah, you know, women living with HIV are like, women everywhere (laughs) (laughs) i mean it seems so trite in some ways but but really Mm -hmm. about you know if you you want many women want to to have children Mm -hmm. and build families and they want those children to be healthy and they Mm -hmm. want themselves to be healthy Mm -hmm. so that they can they can you know raise raise these children and and be there for them and Mm -hmm. um and so what could we do what were we doing that was not supporting that and what could we do that would, you know, would go a much longer way to, towards supporting that? What role did your supervisor play in that story for you? So, <laughs> that's such a good question. <laughs> so my supervisor um, was not interested in my specific topic. Okay. okay which was a which was you know which if handled properly which I think he really did mm-hmm. is could be can be a blessing mm-hmm. in a way yeah. in that he thought that my research topic was interesting mm-hmm. and he thought that it was important okay um but it wasn't his area of research okay so he really encouraged me he's like okay well if that's what you're going to pursue you better find other senior researchers that are also interested Mm. In this, in this topic, and and really kind of um, do your own some of your own really outreach, mm. and he was uh, wonderful in kind of making the connections for me with pretty high level researchers at the time. You know, when you're a graduate student, meeting big shots is is so intimidating. It is. <laughs> does <laughs> it uh, ever get any better? Sorry, just uh, uh, tell no, I don't know yet. I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll let you know if uh, if I ever reach that that platform, but no, it doesn't And because you 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 uh, you know you just value their work so much mm-hmm. and, and in so many ways you're so deeply connected mm-hmm. to it yeah. and yet they're a total stranger to you so it's a bit of an awkward
0: oh, yeah. relationship <laughs> I don't know of any other situation that resembles uh, that relationship I, I think you're right <laughs> I don't
1: know you know it's like I've read every single thing you've written yeah by, you know <laughs> awkward <laughs> but my supervisor really tried to make those connections for me and mm-hmm. of course you, you have to sort of take it from there and you make it what you can mm. um, and so and he did that he, he certainly did that for me and and, and I think um, created opportunities for me if I can describe it that way mm. so really you know when you when you don't know much about being an academic which I did not know um, you need somebody who tells you that like actually applying for grants early in your graduate training mm-hmm. is a really good way to set yourself up for success. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, maybe everybody knows that but for people who come into academia through different pathways, mm-hmm. it's not always obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that I knew about opportunities that a graduate student could apply to. right? Um, or making sure I knew about opportunities that I could apply to with his name but my ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and, figuring out ways to get credit for that and, yeah. and that kind of thing or, you know, or, or what it is that publishing can do for you mm-hmm. during your graduate training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, I would say he provided excellent mentorship in the ways of <laughs> academia <laughs> um, and then created opportunities for me to meet with other researchers that were more interested um, and invested in the types of questions that I was pursuing. Mm-hmm. And so there was a bit of a, I guess separation of of roles, where I think okay. most, a lot of supervisors are supposed to pro- provide both of those mm-hmm. roles, and in my case, they were they were separated, and and it and it worked out. It worked. It seems yeah, yeah it worked. It worked. Okay. I I really I really really um, wanted to do answer the questions that I was asking. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, it does yeah. absolutely. And and so I was very motivated to kind of do what I could do to Mm -hmm. to make that happen Mm -hmm. Um, and he certainly did not stand in my way if I can say yeah
0: at this point you're kind of making your way up the ladder of academia once you got past your PhD was there ever an option other than academia for you?
1: Uh, for sure yeah (laughs) for sure I am you know, I don't know, it would be good to see some research on this. I don't know if everybody kind of comes to, you near know, the end of their PhD and they think like, I am going to pursue an academic tenure track position mm-hmm. or I'm not, or, you know, throw the cards in the air, see where they might, may land. Mm-hmm. I have no demo. idea what
0: the stats are on that yeah. at all.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and I think if you've come in, like I said, as a person interested in research, but not that. Clever, or strategic, <laughs> I guess. I I don't know what how how it plays out. Mm. Um, but certainly, I had I had worked the way my path. I guess it worked is that I had done a master's. I think the year after, I, so I did my undergraduate and did my master's very soon after. If it mm. wasn't the next year, it was like right pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And then did my master's had a great research experience. Mm. But and had started to do some global, I do love global work, you know, primarily from Eastern Southern Africa with Eastern and Southern African stakeholders. Mm. And then kind of came to the realization that it was pretty um, I don't know, maybe a bit negligent of me to sort of be talking about global public health without having a, a some foundation, some yeah. any yes. <laughs> foundation in how this works in Canada. Mm -hmm. How do we do global public health? How do we do public health research in Canada? How do we do public health practice programming Mm -hmm. here? Um, How do we make decisions? How do we prioritize? Um, What's the data that's available to us here that's not available? You know, those sorts of questions. And so I... I started to work in public health. I started to work as a public health practitioner mm. for s- several years Okay, um, at a very regional, I was living in Alberta and Edmonton, mm-hmm. and so at a regional health authority level at a provincial um, health level. Mm. And that was great experience yeah. for me um, and just really, I guess, reorienting to like, okay, how do these processes work and mm. and how, how to be invested in the the public health issues in my own community, yeah. right? And so when I left that work to come back to do a PhD, I, I felt like I had a good, I a good, I guess, um, window into what a career pathway might be mm. if I if I turn to doing uh, public health practice yeah. um, in in the Canadian context, and that was exciting, and I, I liked that. Yeah. I I thought that was really exciting work mm-hmm. important work mm-hmm. um, and so i certainly was thinking about those pathways throughout
0: yeah could you describe a little bit of the work that you
1: actually do on ground in eastern and southern africa yeah i would love to yeah, yeah. so i guess uh, my research program has evolved so that i primarily work in uganda mm-hmm. in uh in barara i know which is where my dad was born hey <laughs> baba <laughs> Um, and I and I got connected with that work through one of these um, colleagues that my supervisor had mm. put me in touch with, yeah. and um, it was a, a, a research collaboration based in Boston at the Harvard the, the MGH um, Center for Global Health, mm-hmm. um, and they had a, they were building quite a massive research program in collaboration with Must the University in Brara. Mm-hmm. Um And I was fortunate enough to kind of get involved in that work and yeah. really pursue questions about sexual and reproductive health yeah. they there were numerous investigators interested in lots of stuff resistance, antiretroviral adherence, mm-hmm. um, uh, cardiovascular disease and other comorbidities, yeah. um, aging, lots of different things and so I was able to come in on, on, on this front. and so they were building a very um, you know Americans do things. Big in my experience, <laughs> but they're building a, a big collaboration across many um, departments in the Faculty of Medicine mm-hmm. at Must with all of these researchers, and so um, I got funding from the National Institutes of Health pretty early on mm-hmm. to really do an, an add-on study, I would say. Okay. So they were following people who were initially who were um, initiating antiretroviral therapy. Mm-hmm. And following them over time. And several, you know, the driving question was around adherence, Mm -hmm. right? And because at the time, a lot of questions, pretty racist questions, honestly, were uh, floating about whether people in rural Uganda could... Take antiretroviral therapy and adhere to it, mm. and avoid resistance and all of this kind of stuff. Mm. And so that was one of their primary research questions. Yeah. And so I came in and I added a research question around: okay, what was happening with sexual reproductive health? Mm-hmm. What were our patterns of pregnancy incidents? And you know, were people who were you know starting antiretroviral therapy also getting access to other forms of healthcare? Mm-hmm. Because a criticism of HIV programming has been you come in and you provide all of these resources for HIV, but yeah, nothing else. Nothing else. Yeah. So there's no contraception. Mm. Um, there's no, you know, minimal maternal infant care, etc. Yeah. So what was happening on these other on these other fronts? Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting findings that we started to 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 see in that work was that you know a lot of people living with HIV reported that they did have fertility intentions, mm-hmm. and we did start to see that as they had access to treatment those you know those intentions sort of become renewed you're healthier yeah. you feel better mm-hmm. you, you know you can have sex like yeah. there's all of these things that start to change yeah. but the other thing that started to happen alongside of that is that because they were receiving care every 3 months for HIV mm. they were just in more contact with the healthcare system mm. so it had other benefits in terms of somebody if somebody was there to talk to to talk to them or provide information about Mm -hmm. Um, family planning they could you know sort of start to be a bit more connected to care in ways that um, were wonderful Mm -hmm. you know and important and and overlooked (laughs) exactly and so our work in that space has has started to grow into what we call um, safer conception Mm -hmm. and essentially it's the idea that if one person's living with HIV and the partner is negative Mm -hmm. right, in order to conceive you have to have most people yes. have to have condomless sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's other ways, but most people have to have condomless sex. And that would introduce a risk of transmission yeah. from the positive partner to the uninfected partner. Mm-hmm. But if you could support people to, to sort of be enrolled in care, and mm-hmm. um, there were a lot of strategies available to virtually eliminate that risk. Yeah. So they could conceive and carry pregnancy to term and, and not risk transmission. But you had to have a conversation about it, Yeah, right? So a lot of our work was about, okay, let's talk to providers. What are they offering mm-hmm. um, their patients in this way? Let's talk to people living with HIV. What are their concerns about accessing mm-hmm. this type of information and their experiences, et cetera? Yeah. Um, and so now we have a um, – we, uh, we still call it a pilot clinic, but it's been running for a couple of years now oh. – the safer conception clinic at um, the HIV care center, where if people are in these circumstances mm-hmm. and they want information and support, counseling care yeah. about pregnancy, they can come and receive a you know no judgment, no stigma, mm-hmm. reproductive rights grounded mm-hmm. um, type of out of care. So our research sort of is built on those um, on on the information that we're collecting from that setting. Yeah, and one of the ways that's a bit surprising for me that's transformed in this research is that. I focus so heavily on women, mm. um, and our work there has really led us to also focus on men, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> but of course, oh, but of course, but heterosexual men living with HIV, mm. and they are a group that really also doesn't get a lot of attention, ah. particularly in the realm of sexual reproductive health, right? Um, and we're starting to see trends more in South Africa than in Uganda, where. As women get more uh, connected to HIV care mm-hmm. and on treatment, it's having HIV prevention benefits for men. It's it's benefiting yeah. their male partners. But if men are not enrolling in care and getting on treatment, they're still um, not offering this HIV prevention benefit mm-hmm. to women. Yeah. So that's not. I mean, I care about men also, <laughs> but it's not the only reason. But there are, you know, obviously these gender dynamics matter in multiple directions. Mm-hmm. So our work there, some of my work there, has really trans, is um, really started to move into, um, you know, talking about the sexual reproductive health needs of men living with HIV. Yeah. Um, as well. Yeah. And so that's been exciting.
0: I know, because it's it's multi-dimensional now. It's not just this, you know, maybe underprivileged or under-catered to group. It's it it, it perforates and it it touches so many aspects of society, right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, we're still, you know, all of this work still exists within, mm-hmm. you know, like micro-level relationships through to macro-level mm-hmm. forces. And we can't, you know, we can't disassociate those. We They're all, all of those contextual factors matter. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's really how our research program um, sort of builds and, and grows. Mm-hmm. Um, in I do have a slightly tangential question, sure. though it is
0: relevant. How do you build trust with a population of people that have some level of mistrust with the medical care system in some cases? Because I know in Uganda, the the somewhat savior complex is incorporated into the medical profession where people come in from other countries and they try to help or try to treat you or your children or your family members. Sometimes bad things happen and that makes people very hesitant to go to the doctor if they're not feeling well. How do you make sure that they trust you with their bodies, with their feelings, with their stories? Because that's also very important.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's such a beautifully phrased question. Um, and it, it it's pervasive in global health mm, research, um, yeah. not just clinical care. As researchers, we're, we have to be really reflexive on that point. Mm. I mean, I think there's no easy way for me to answer this question, and I, th- I would say it's it's an ongoing practice. Yeah, it's not like oh, we've achieved trust to badge <laughs> today. You know, it's an ongoing process, yeah. and it's um, it's active work, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of that for me has been um, partnerships with um, leaders at must, mm-hmm. um, and so and really trying to find a balance between what you know what's an interesting research question mm-hmm. and what's needed. Yeah. And and sometimes, as you well know, they're not the same. No. <laughs> um, and so, really trying to be, you know, trying to be mindful and 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 uh, reflective and and sort of like iterative in our discussions about, yeah. like, okay, this is what we're focused on. Is this really what the primary need is or interest is? Or are we doing this the best way? Is there other people that we need to to bring in and? And you know, there's being there's a lot being written right now about huge power inequities mm-hmm. among researchers mm-hmm. on global health research teams. Yeah, I mean, let alone between the researchers and the participants, which is a whole other um, which is a whole other domain. Yeah. Um, and those are complicated issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and bringing sort of neo-colonial approaches to global health research Mm. needs to be really scrutinized and and we all need to be like thinking about that and work actively working Mm -hmm. um uh against it so i I, as i said i don't have an easy answer i just know it's a it's it's practice it's practice it's daily Mm. kind of um work and i hope that our colleagues Mm -hmm. think that um we've you know that we that can see that or think that we are we are working in that way but mm-hmm. i can't guarantee it that's for sure is it a conversation that does
0: come up within the group before you make your way to eastern and southern africa before you leave canada is it a conversation that happens on ground here
1: with my with anybody who's newly joining mm. our group absolutely good i've been working with the my colleagues in uganda for I mean, like maybe like thirteen years mm. or something like that. So there's a relationship so, there. Yeah, we've been yeah. building a relationship yeah. over time and with a lot of different mm. people, and um, and same with South Africa. Probably about the same amount of time. Mm. Um, and so and yeah, but anybody new, any trainees that come through, that's critical. Yeah. Um, and one of the the you know I teach a, a course, a field course in Durban, and mm. it's it's done in partnership between the Faculty of Health Sciences at SFU mm-hmm. and the Africa Health Research Institute at in Durban. Mm-hmm. Um, we have half of the students who come to the course are from Eastern Southern African universities that wow. are connected to this network, yeah. and then the other half are primarily from UB, from SFU, yeah. a couple from UBC sometimes, mm-hmm. but are primarily from SFU. And one of the things that I just think about all the time and, and try to work on is, is around how do you prepare students to learn in that environment mm-hmm. and like really, you know, like just re- reflexive processes about power and mm-hmm. inequity and privilege mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. social identity and social location and, yeah. and that. And our MPH program at in the Faculty of Health Sciences does really invest a lot in in that aspect Good. of our work. Yeah. And so the students do get quite a bit of training and, mm. um, But it's a, it's, it's, I mean, by all, like, like everything, it's probably not enough. And there's just, but there's, and there's, so there's work to be done. Yes. Yeah. Without question.
0: Yeah. But it's a work in progress. So any work that is being done is a good and commendable thing. So hearing that actually does make me quite excited. I obviously have a personal attachment to Uganda. And I know a lot of people go there and, and want to do good work, but because of its colonial history and like you said those power dynamics that exist perpetuating it would do more harm than good without question yeah most With- definitely yeah funding for this episode was provided by the javad milva center for brain health and the graduate program in neuroscience at the university of british columbia as Her Royal Science is now based in the United Kingdom, we'd like to start connecting with individuals in STEM who are interested in being interviewed for our podcast. Reach out via Twitter or Instagram using the handle at her underscore science, or send us an email, herroyalscience at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in for next month's episode, where we continue our conversation with Dr. Kaida, delving more into her life alongside her scientific work. As always, peace and blessings.